Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. As Women's History Month continues, today we'll hear from the first woman to have a solo exhibition at the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, and the first American summoned to make an official portrait of the Queen of England. Annie Leibovitz talks about her 50 years of photography later this hour. First... Irish singer-songwriter Chloe Agnew has been famous since the age of 14 as one of the original and youngest members of the popular music group Celtic Woman. After about 10 years, she moved on to a solo career with international tours that took her to many places, including Atlanta. She returns to our area soon and joins us now via Zoom. Chloe Agnew, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me, my dear. Good to talk to you. Thank you so much. What drew you to music at such a young age? Gosh, well, um, I was practically born into the business. Both of my, uh, my parents are very well-known entertainers at home in Ireland. My mother is one of those all-round entertainers. She's a familiar face in Irish households as singing, dancing, acting. And my father is the oboe player and coronglay player with our National Concert Orchestra at home in Ireland. And I always joke that my grandfather had a great line. He used to say that if you hang around wet paint long enough, some of it is bound to rub up. (laughs) I reckon that's what happened with me growing up in the business. It was very much a a way of life. It's how the family put bread on the table. And I, I So I started performing and singing at a very young age. And then one thing kind of led to the next. I recorded a charity single when I was 11. Uh, It was shortly after the events of 9-11 here. And it was for the children of America and of Afghanistan who had been affected. And the single did very well. And it was after that then that a record company approached me and I did my first album at 12 and a, a second one before I turned 14. And it was later that year that the record company I had done my albums with had come up, a creative team had come up 
with this concept for what was originally supposed to be a one night show that was Celtic Woman. And it was putting all of the couple of the girls who were all on the same label together for this this one night show. So I think I said yes, because I thought I'd get the next day off school. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think that one night would turn into to the rest of my life with Celtic Woman. But I'm, I'm so thankful that it has, because now that I look back, I I wouldn't have it any other way, I think things are meant to be the way they are. Oh, my goodness. And Celtic Woman became such a phenomenon. Yes, it really did. None of us expected it. It it blew up overnight. Like, as I said, we we all expected to come along and enjoy ourselves for the evening. We knew it, it was being filmed for American television, but we had no idea that it would go out on the TV in January 2005. And by the March, we were number one on the Billboard World Music Charts. We were performing on the Today Show. And in a very short space of time, it kind of exploded. And initially, it was take the next couple of months out to see where this is going to go and a couple of months turned into the best part of 10 years of my life and then I moved on from the group for a couple of years to pursue some solo things and I'm thrilled that they've asked me to come back last year for the 15th anniversary of Celtic Woman and it's still going strong to this day and and we're just forever thankful that I guess it was the right place at the right time and and that the the American people opened their hearts and and their doors to us here on PBS television. And it, it kind of became a home for us for the best part of the last 15 years. Obviously, you had the right voice and artistry for it. Chloe, how did you find your own sound after being with Celtic Woman from such a young age? Yeah, well, thank you for asking that. You know, it was it was one of the reasons that I wanted to move on from Celtic Woman to try and see what else I could explore musically uh, for myself. Because, you know, you're part of that Celtic Woman world for a long time. It's a, it's a very particular style of music, a particular style of show. And I was looking for a, a new connection with music. And I, I figured the only way to do that was to explore songwriting and to see what was going to come from the inside out so it it was scary you know it really was when I left Celtic Woman initially I had no idea who I was outside of Celtic Woman and it, it took a lot of soul searching and a lot of exploring different musical genres and I think that's that's been one of the best things for me over the last few years has been the diversity in the range of stuff that I've done everything from the classical crossover stuff with the, the pops orchestras here in America I've toured with a wonderful country singer um, I've explored some more of the pop and R&B stuff so it's been a real joy to see where songwriting can take you and, and all the different circles that, that it brings you to and collaborating has just brought out so many new musical loves and styles in me that I didn't know were there. So it's been a process of trial and error and and finding what feels right to me. And I think ultimately at the end of the day, when people come along to your show, it's great for them to hear one or two songs that they know you for, but it's really so rewarding as a songwriter and as a performer to get to perform your own music and songs that whether they even just be covers, but they're ones that you've chosen for a reason, because I believe music is most real. It's most heard when it comes from a place that people believe what you're singing, you know, and and you believe what you're singing. It has to come from the heart for it to be genuine and authentic. And I think that has been the most rewarding part for me over the last few years is exploring that and getting to build set lists and find out what works and what doesn't work. And it's ever changing. And it's the thing that keeps you on your toes. It's a blessing. Last week was St. Patrick's Day, and you posted on your Instagram that normally the streets of Dublin would be filled with people celebrating the holiday. And this year, 
those streets were empty because of the COVID-19 pandemic. You released a new song on St. Patrick's Day called On My Heart. It's called Written On My Heart, yes. It's actually inspired by a wonderful James Joyce quote. James Joyce is one of the great Irish writers and novelists. And I was in a little pub in Dublin a couple of years ago and I had been away for many, many months on on end on tour. And I, I came into this little pub on Christmas Eve with my family and I looked up on the wall and there was a quote that said, from James Joyce, it said, when I die, Dublin will be written on my heart. It just spoke to me straight away and and I knew I wanted to write a song about it. And so I did. I was inspired by the fact that so many people can't be at home with their loved ones. So many people who who make a yearly trip to Ireland for St. Patrick's Day couldn't make that this year. And to see our beautiful streets empty of life and energy, it was a moment I wanted to capture, inspired by that great James Joyce quote. I should be happy when the sun is shining on me But today I miss the rain I keep thinking about the cobble streets where I fell Fell in love with all of you You always feel like that old friend of mine Last week, we had a special St. Patrick's Day show, and I spoke with the Consul General of Ireland for the Southeast and an Irish poet living in Atlanta. And I was struck by how much poetry and storytelling informs Irish culture. It is. It's inherently in our blood. And we have these incredible people in Ireland, Shanachi, who are these these storytellers, and they can tell these stories, these just wonderful tales you could sit and listen to for hours. And I do really believe it's in our blood, which I think is why it, it translates over to music so well, is that, you know, the Irish have a song for everything. We have songs for, we've sad songs, we've happy songs, love songs, drinking songs, songs for milking the cow, you name it, we have it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that is exactly that. It's a way of expressing our love for both land, for people, for home, and a way for our tiny little island to spread its history and its stories all over the world. It's, it's why I, I love performing these old Irish songs because they're they're always fantastic stories. You split your time between LA and Dublin. Have you found major cultural differences between the music industry in Ireland and that here in the US? Oh, completely. It's different everywhere you go. I mean, I spend a lot of time in Nashville. I I spend a lot of time here in Atlanta. Georgia has become like a second home to me. It really does vary depending on where you go. I think I would be naive to say that that dog-eat-dog, cutthroat thing definitely does exist a lot more in LA. And I think it toughened me up. It made me learn a lot of things about myself and the business very quickly, the hard way. But I do think that when you, you come over to this side of the country too, the likes of Nashville and 
Georgia, it kind of reminds me a little bit more of home. There's a, an openness in the community to welcoming in different new blood. I kind of, I really love that when I, when I come over this side of the country. I find Los Angeles, the doors can be a little harder to get behind, but they are two totally different worlds. Absolutely. And then the thing about Ireland is I love it so much, but it's so small. And it's one of the best things I love about it is that everybody knows everyone. You kind of sometimes feel like you, you want to get out and explore music and meet people elsewhere to justify what you do and, and to, to really learn from different cultures and different ways that people do things, you know. You have a live stream coming up and two live performances at Red Clay Foundry here in Duluth, Georgia. So many people are looking forward to this. I was curious about how different it is for you to perform for an in-person audience versus a live stream. I mean, you're perfectly comfortable and have been most of your life with live work, but what about this streaming world? Oh, it's it's very strange, to be very honest with you, Lois. Like the one thing that I love about our live stream on Friday is that we have partnered with this wonderful company, Virago, to bring a higher quality production element to the live stream. So it's not just me sitting at my laptop pressing on, on my camera. <laughs> we've brought in several cameras and we've got a proper sound mixing. So it's going to look and sound like a different quality to what people expect from live streaming. It's difficult in that, yes, you are talking to yourself. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, when the song finishes in your head, you have to hopefully imagine that there's some applause. <laughs> but I think we're, we're very thankful to be able to make music for people wherever they are in the world. That is really, really spectacular. Yes, it is very very different. I just did a show here at the weekend in Georgia and to actually perform in front of real humans again was just both thrilling and terrifying oh. <laughs> because you forget what actual people in an audience look like and feels like. It's been so long for so many of us. Well, there's a good chance that people in your audiences in Duluth will have received their COVID-19 vaccinations already. Indeed. Uh, and look, you know what, Red Clay is one of my favorite venues in the whole world. Eddie Owen is just one of the best people I've ever met. And, and what he continues to do to support artists, even in these challenging times, I always get an incredible welcome every time I come there. And it, it, it genuinely feels like a second home. To have two shows on Sunday is going to be great. As I said, there'll be smaller numbers, but um, 3.30 and 7 p.m. at Red Clay Music Foundry on Sunday is our, our two live shows. For anybody who can't make it to any of the live concerts, we, of course, have two live streams this Friday at 2 p.m. and 7 p.m. All of the information, all of the, the ticket links, all of that is on my official website on chloeagneofficial.com. Chloe, this has been such a delight. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for your time. Lots of love and Irish luck to all of your listeners. Irish singer-songwriter Chloe Agnew. She'll have a live stream performance tomorrow through Virago TV and two live performances in person at Red Clay Music Foundry in Duluth on Sunday at 3.30 p.m. and 7 p.m. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, from Rolling Stone to Buckingham Palace on WABE Atlanta.
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. As Women's History Month continues, we turn now to the first woman to have a solo exhibition at the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C., and the first American summoned to make an official portrait of the Queen of England. Annie Leibovitz has created some of the most iconic portraits of celebrities in the last 50 years, with a career that began as a commercial photographer for Rolling Stone magazine in the 1970s. Her intimate portraits have made Leibovitz among the most celebrated living artists. Annie Leibovitz compiled her favorite photographs into two publications, Portraits 2005 through 2016 and a revised expanded edition of her 2008 book, Annie Leibovitz at Work. When she stopped by WABE in late 2018, Leibovitz spoke candidly about her career, her life, and the evolution of her photography. From 1970, I started working for Rolling Stone magazine and right out of school. I was still in school, actually. You wrote that from a very young age, probably even younger than, than you were in 1970, you had become accustomed to looking at the world through a frame. Mm-hmm. Do you still? Do you know that is a really good question because um, yes, I I having um, really done that work as a young person, very obsessed. You know, working all the time. Not not really working, but but photographing. Photography was my life. Everything was so interesting. Every single you know situation you walked into or was different and interesting and. And, and and really amazing. Um, I, I tell you, it was really, it's, it's so interesting you're bringing that up because um, what happened is, you know, David Hockney came along with his, um, you know, his studies on perspective and, uh, you know, his photo montages where um, there were many photographs. And, and it was really sort of groundbreaking to me because it was really how the eye sees. The eye doesn't just see in a rectangle or a square, it sees a little to the right, a little to the left, <laughs> and you, you know, you see more peripheral. And you know, I, I used to, you know, sort of look peripherally out of 
besides, you know, when things were going on all the time to make sure I was getting something. But you could never get everything into that frame. It was really, really, really hard. Um, I for, for two or three years, I actually took photographs inspired by Hockney. I took photographs. I shot to the left and I shot to the right <laughs> and I put them together. And it was quite fascinating to like broaden your vision like that. Of course, it was useless for spontaneity, you know, because <laughs> something would be happening in the left frame and something would be happening in the right frame and they never quite went together. But so I stopped doing that. But um, no, I just think it's um, I have to I, I can't help but think of um, what you're asking me literally because I admired as a as a young person um, Robert Frank and Cartier-Bresant who used the rectangle um, to you know they were geniuses they they the 35 millimeter they composed in that rectangle and I, I try so hard to do to the decisive moment you know that that the Cartier-Bresant talked about and I was just useless at it I mean I I I really don't know if I believe in the decisive moment. For you know, for myself anyway, because life is more like uh, a movie. You know, there's more like things are going on like all the time, and I, I, it's always been hard for me to stop us into a single image. But that is where I love my magazine work because I love I love the series. I love you know, five or six, seven photographs to tell a story. I mean, I, I understand. You know, I, I came to terms with with creating. Um, a single image, uh, you know, primarily for those covers of Rolling Stone early on. Believe it or not, at the um, at the end of the '70s, being asked by Life magazine to do a series of of poets, you know, Tess Gallagher and Robert Penn Warren, and uh, I started to think about how I could photograph a portrait of them and really emulate their their work. Their, you know, how could I see their poetry in, in these photographs? Anyway, I'm not too sure after doing this for so long that I'm I'm one kind of photographer. Yeah. When you mention Penn Warren, you photographed him and wrote that he had been writing a lot about death. Mm -hmm. And you have him shirtless Mm -hmm. and just appearing gaunt and almost Mm -hmm. raw. I think you did capture the moment. I, I, no, that's that's very nice. Um, do you know, I, I'm i not too sure. Um, I don't think anyone else – I really f- felt like no one else ever understood the picture because it looked like a man with no shirt on, you know, sitting on a bed. And, um, and it really was about um, – and he was so, so at peace. I mean, he was so um, – it, it, it was – it was something that one could only hope when it's time <laughs> for oneself that that one would feel that much uh, at ease and at peace. Actually, you know what? I personally love getting older because I think um, that is sort of falling into place. How about you? Are I'm you, loving it. Aren't you? I'm I mean, loving well, it. No one talks about it enough. Well, you know the muscle tone. I, I don't wouldn't mind. What I know I I'm wearing to. my fat pants today. It's like, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah. yes, it's yeah. it's liberating. It's quite interesting. I mean, it's really um, you kind of know what you're doing. Doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be good, you know, every day or whatever. But it's it's just wonderful to know what you're doing and um, and and you slow down and. It's it's feels so natural. It's it's not um, 
you know, you're, you're not running to any place anymore. You know, I know that maybe that doesn't sound great to some people, but I, I I'm so. Um... You are at peace, and you have three terrific kids, and <laughs> that's they the only keep part. You young. That's, that's the only part I didn't quite, quite figure out right. <laughs> oh well, no, but, you no, have I that. love, I love my. Oh God, I love my girls. I mean, I love them. It's just it does make you want to be around longer. You know, that's the only uh, little little hiccup, uh, you know, having done it late in my life, you know. Um, There's no predicting. I mean, look at Cartier-Bresson. Wasn't well, he 95, <laughs> 99? That, that, there is a funny riff among photographers that, you know, it, as a profession, <laughs> there's a lot of longevity in it, you know. But, so there uh, you go. You picked the right. <laughs> I don't know. But then you have those Rolling Stone years that, like, sort of, <laughs> took, I think, subtracted a few they years. They <laughs> are behind you, Annie. I know, but they... <laughs> <laughs> they certainly took a lot out of took a lot out of me. I mean, listen, you know, had extraordinary uh, time. It um, launched your career. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, you know, you have to believe that I had no idea I had a career. I mean, I was really just working, and 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 I really worked. That first book, 1970, 1990. 1990 was the first time I just I went out. So I was working for almost twenty years, and. And I went out um, to talk about the book, and it was the first time that I realized that people were looking at my work. I mean, I, I didn't. I, I was so, I was so engaged in my work. I, I, I was in a vacuum. I had no. I, I really had no idea that people, you know, were that aware of my work. And you said that you thought of yourself as a photojournalist rather mm. than a photographer because. The narrative was so important. When did you transition to photographer, or do you still think of yourself as well, a no. storyteller? I no, I, 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 of course, one would love to be able to tell a story. Um, I, I don't know if it's fair to try to tell a story in one photograph, though. I still think we need. You know what Life Magazine was doing for us, which were, were the, you had the photo story. Actually, I'm seeing it now. It's quite an interesting time. The New York Times, you know, and the Washington Post. I mean, they are running picture stories, and they are they are our new magazines. They really are. I mean, um, the New York Times uh, on usually on Sundays they take several pages in the back of the first section, and they run these kind of riveting photojournalistic stories. Uh, and they give them, you know, a lot of space. You know, not small. They, you know, they go over the page. I mean, they over over the two pages. Um, it, I'm just I'm just riveted with what I'm seeing journalistically today. I, it's so powerful to me. I, I'm so really that's uh, the best photography we have right now is our journalism. I love that in talking about your portrait of. Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi as the Blues Brothers, you reveal that painting them blue was a bold move they weren't entirely on board with. In fact, Belushi walked out and you said he didn't talk to you for six months after That's right. that. That's right. And, and you go on to write that you did a lot of that kind of thing when you were young and cocky, but you wouldn't even know how to do it now. Hmm. It's not so much that I wouldn't know how to do it now. Is I, I, I think it has, has something to do with being older. I don't think that that's the kind of photograph I would think about taking. Not that I'm not interested in conceptual work, 
you know, I did this series for Vanity Fair on um, the Hall of Fame and, you know, Hannah Gadsby, we took a photograph that you know, the comedian, I, I don't know, I can't even call her a comedian. She's just a, a genius. Mm-hmm. Um, but she sent me a, a photograph of Picasso's painting of Gertrude Stein as a reference idea because I was sending her, we were emailing back and forth and I used that portrait of Picasso's portrait of Gertrude Stein is a kind of a, a reference picture for photographing Hannah. But uh, it, it had a lot more to, as an idea for Hannah, I don't know if you, you know her work at I all. am familiar with her, and I agree she's brilliant <laughs> and heartbreaking and funny. I mean, it's extraordinary. I think what was interesting about the painting, because uh, I was thinking that I would I was going to go into that sitting with her a little bit not not exactly like a Diane Arbus, but, you know, just very straightforward, you know, like a very, very straight, like an August Sander, a very, very straightforward image. And then she sent me the painting, and I realized what she was talking about was the integrity in Gertrude Stein. You know, the story is that Gertrude Stein, of course, didn't like the painting at first when um, when it was done. And then Picasso said, you know, like, wait 20 years, you know, you're, <laughs> you're going to like it. So um, Talk about young and cocky. <laughs> yeah. Stutz Terkel came to my mind when I thought about the title of your book at work. And though your subjects aren't a tribute to workers, the title suggests a sort of utilitarianism. Mm. Is that how you think of your work, Annie? Less an artist and more a worker? Well, you know, when I did at work, you know, I was always enamored with Ansel Adams. Uh, he, he did a book called Examples, and he had uh, taken 40 of his photographs and, and deconstructed them. They were case studies of, of how he'd, he made the photographs. And, you know, being around as long as I've been around, I, you know, I would, you know, be besieged or talked to by young photographers about how I did my pictures. And I thought, you know, I think it's time to talk about, you know, the making of some of these photographs. And I thought maybe I was going to have... 10 photographs, you know, and, and it turned out to be over 100 photographs in, in, in this book. But it was really done as a, as a primer for young photographers. So what I try to explain is that there's just no secret way or magic way to do your work that is, is going to be work, you know, and that you just you have to do it. There's no magic or secret. You, it's just work. It's just work. So that's why the title renowned photographer Annie Leibovitz. We're listening back to my 2018 conversation with her, and we'll return with more after a short break. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's get back to my 2018 conversation with the celebrated photographer Annie Leibovitz. That's another interesting thing about photography is is that the the image how you know it, it changes it, it it can change after someone dies or, or leaves uh, leaves you. It, it has a different meaning a different meaning as true I guess with John and Yoko as well. I was hoping to ask you about <laughs> that, Annie, because there's this heart-achingly beautiful story attached to it, and 
Would you talk about how the meaning of that photo changed after you took the picture? Well, I had gone to photograph John for a cover of Rolling Stone, and I was actually told as I was, you know, basically going out the door that, you know, Jan, Jan Winter didn't want a photograph of, of Yoko. He just wanted a, a portrait of John for the cover. This is the editor or, of, of, of Rolling Stone. Of Rolling Stone. And, um, you know, I knew John. I mean, I didn't know him, but I, you know, I've known him over 10 years. I had photographed him earlier for, for, for Rolling Stone. Um, so it was 10 years. I think of this photograph as almost 10 years in the making. They had just come out with an album called Double Fantasy, and they're kissing on the cover. So I was very, very enamored with that. I loved the idea of romance, you know, and, and uh, I loved the idea of their, their relationship. But I walked into the, into the apartment, and, and he, he came up and he said, you know, we have to have Yoko in the picture. Yoko has to be on the cover with me. And I said, well, if we're going to do that, we got to do something really good. You know? So um, and I told him about my idea of, of them embracing each other. And I I imagine they were both going to be nude and uh, because it wasn't unusual. John and Yoko were nude. And the last minute, Yoko was willing to take her, her shirt off and not her pants. And so I said, well, why don't you leave everything on? And then so John, you know, curled up next to her, and I took a couple of Polaroids and folded, pulled the Polaroids, and, and John said, oh, oh, this, this is our relationship. This, this is us. So I took just a few frames, really, and then, and then left uh, the apartment, and I was maybe going to meet up with them later at the, at the recording studio. They were going out, and then Jan Winner himself actually called me in the evening and said someone who matched uh, John's description was taken you know, to the hospital. Uh, he was shot. And, and then, um, you know, I spent the rest of the night up at the hospital, you know, waiting to hear. But it, it, yes, it's, here's a photograph that, that was taken with one idea in mind, and, and then John is killed. And it has another, uh, I, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but I mean, because I don't want to describe it necessarily. You may want to do that. But um, it, it takes on other an, other meaning. A, a goodbye, yes, mm. a goodbye. Jan, of course, ran it on the cover. <laughs> Annie, you write that the most important thing a young photographer can do is learn how to see. Mm. How did you learn that lesson? Again, just doing it over, you know, taking pictures and going to, back to the dark room and developing the film and printing and looking. Um, I mean, I was very lucky because I had the darkroom and I don't, I actually don't know how young photographers can, can have that, you know, experience because it was so beautiful to go into a darkroom and, you know, the lights be off and you see, you know, the images come up in the, in, in the, in the tray and in, in the chemicals. And it's it magic. Like, it, it, that was magic. It really was magic. It, and, you know, as I, as I became um, more busy, it became harder and harder for me to go back into the darkroom. I used to try to get into the darkroom once a year, but um, it, it sort of, you know, fell by the wayside. But so how do you see? You see by continuing to take pictures and, Looking at what you do, I mean, I was very lucky. Also, I had B.F. Feitler, who was a great art director, um, you know, that sort of mentored me, and, and she told me I had to edit my work, you know, that I had to learn how to edit my work. 
we just go and we take pictures and pictures and pictures, but you know, you have to stop and you have to edit and you have to, and it took me years to understand what was a good picture and what was not a good picture. And don't ask me what a good picture is. I don't, <laughs> but that's what the books are. You see, the books are to me, you know, 1970, 1990 was the, the first time I stopped and looked at my work. And then 1990 to 2005 were the years I, you know, was with Susan Sontag, and that was Photographer's Life, and that was an edit. These what, are memoirs. Oh, thank you. That's very, very nice. And then this is this new uh, edit from, you know, 2005 to 2016. I had so much work, so much work had accumulated. I mean, I, I, when I called Fiden and said, I want to do this book, I had this idea. I knew what the ending was going to be, and it was going to be, the last picture I was going to take for the book was going to be Hillary Clinton in the White House. <laughs> And then um, that didn't happen. And I floundered, actually. I, I called Fiden and said, I can't do the book. I don't have an ending. So th you see at the end of the end of this book, me kind of trying to figure out what an ending could be. You were the first American to be asked by Buckingham Palace to make an official portrait of the queen. Big damn deal. Big damn deal. I, I did find out finally, because, you know, I went back to do another sitting with the queen for her 90th birthday. So I had pulled myself together and I asked the press office, I said, why did the queen ask me, you know, to take her picture, you know, the first time? And the press office uh, officer told me, she said, well, Annie, you, you wrote her a letter and asked her if, if she would sit for a picture. This was like when I was working on the Women's Project with Susan Sontag in 1999. And we thought maybe the book was going to be about maybe women more from, you know, around the world. And I did send her a letter. It was five five to ten years earlier I had written her this letter asking if I could take her picture. <laughs> so it's just a nice little story for young young photographers. If they, have, if they want to take someone's picture, they send them a letter. Eventually <laughs> that may happen. But yeah, but just, now they'd send an email. Who knows if it would reach the queen. That's true. That's well, true. Here's this huge tribute to you and your work. And while you had to put up with some absurd demands, ultimately she won you over. Oh, she was fantastic. She was incredible. I mean, if you can imagine, she was wearing 75 pounds of robes. And I also found out later that um, we think we interrupted her favorite daytime TV show. <laughs> so, so that was the other. Tell she, us what it was. No, I don't know what it was. But but in any case, she, she does watch TV a lot. But I, I, <laughs> the in, in price any, is in, right. Have you have you watched The Crown? By the way, yes. I mean, I I wish I had seen that before I photographed her because I I sort of believe believe in it in some way. Oh, I thought it was stupendous. What was so sweet about the. The second time I went to take her portrait for her 90th birthday, because what was so charming is that the ideas for that second time were her ideas, and 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 it was so sweet. She wanted to be photographed with Princess Anne, she wanted to be photographed with her dogs, and she wanted you know to be photographed with her grandchildren. So she didn't say anything about Prince Charles or Prince Philip. It was like, <laughs> and we did that. We did we did those three pictures for her. That's what she wanted. I loved your takeaway. What you write about the very end of the photo session? What struck you so powerfully? 
you wrote about duty. And we know more about that now because we, there's been a lot more talked about, you know, about that. But uh, at, at that time, I, I was new to me to understand her. I mean, when I did my research for her, she was probably the most photographed person in the world. You know, I, I, I mean, there was so much material, you know, to look at over all those years. But that sitting was sort of talked about a lot because the BBC had portrayed it as if she had walked out of this sitting. Quite the opposite. She had walked into the sitting, <laughs> very, very determined. You know, she she was a live one. She was very feisty. And it's like, <laughs> she, I loved it. I, I mean, I remember the sitting was over and I told the press, press officer, I said, oh, my God, I, the queen was incredible. But no, she has such, that's why she was so angry, is that she would never have walked out, you know, of, of she just has such a, a strong sense of, of duty in what she's doing. And she didn't stop until I said, thank you very much. She did not, you know, say it's over. She was like, she was waiting, you know, uh, and, until I said, you know, thank you. The queen was waiting for your command, well, I mean, Annie Leibovitz. We had a certain amount of time, you know, <laughs> and I kept it within that time. And, and then, you know. And your little girl <laughs> and Sarah got to curtsy for her? Yes. Do you have photos of that? I don't have photographs of that. I think it's in that BBC documentary. <laughs> okay. They got to meet her again this, the second time we photographed. With the advent of Instagram and the ubiquity of selfies and telephones, do you think that's something good for photography or does it annoy you? Well, we're, we're talking about two different things. Well, one is, you know, the Instagram account, which is I have never crossed over. My girls do have their own friend chats, you know, um, but I have never I've always had a place to place my photographs. So I never used Instagram myself. But you cannot underestimate the convenience of having a camera in your pocket, it's just accessible and, and, and available. And, you know, that is really the difference between taking the photograph and not taking the photograph. And I'm a big advocate of the cell phone camera. I just think it's, it's wonderful. And I love it for my children. I, I, first of all, I really love photography so much. The fact that my children can take pictures of their friends and, you know, things that are going on in their lives and they can sort of um, see themselves and, and, and come to terms with, with who they are through, through imagery like that. I, I, and then I just think, again, I, photography is so broad and big. It has, there's room for all of this. You know, there's no reason to say there can't be all these kinds of photographs. You know, I, I remember, um, I've said this before, but, you know, going in to see Vanessa Redgrave backstage and she pulls out her, her phone and she shows me her grandchildren. So, you know, I love the, the camera phone. I think it's great for everyone. I adore the photo of your mom. So I, I talk about this, this photograph of my mom when, you know, I'm asked about my favorite, favorite photograph. And one of the reasons I talk about it is because it, uh, it sort of raised the bar. I mean, I, I can't uh, achieve that kind of intimacy in, in my day-to-day -day work, you know, that, that, that I do. It's really your family and your friends where you have that kind of very special work. And this was done for the Women's Project um, with, with Su Susan Sontag and for, for 1999. But it was a diff difficult sitting because my mother looked uncomfortable at first. And I asked her what was wrong. And she said, well, I, I don't want to look old. How do mothers know? They have that intu intuition. I don't know what it is. But I, I, was, I wanted to make sure my mother looked her age. You know, I, I was interested in that. 
But what struck me the most about this photograph after was all was said and done is I realized when, when I look at my mom in this photograph, I, I really feel like um, there's no camera there. You know, there's, she really is looking at me. And I, I, I remember the women's show in, uh, hanging at the Corcoran in Washington, D.C., and, and someone said to me, you know, your mother really loves you. <laughs> you know, and I'm looking at it and I said, no, no, no. And I'm, looking at it, I'm looking at it. You're right. She really does love me. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Validation okay. on the wall. It's just as powerful a photo as any of them. I use it as an example, really. I mean, I think my favorite portraits of all time are, are Stiglitz's photographs of um, George O'Keefe. They're just make me so weak. I mean, because, you know, they were married, they were in love. She was great uh, muse. She loved, you know, she she loved to to sit for him. And uh, he was a great photographer. And um, what a great combination. And those photographs are just extraordinary. So it's that intimacy. I mean, you see it in Sally Mann's pictures of her children. That work is only there, there. You know, I mean, that's only in in that kind of in intimacy. A conversation in late 2018 with the inimitable Annie Leibovitz. Her latest photography books are At Work and Portraits 2005 through 2016. You're listening to City Lights, Bombshell an ethical fashion brand offering contemporary West African clothing and merchandise made in Liberia, opened its first store in the U.S. last October. It's located in Pont City Market. I spoke with the founder, Arshel Bernard, about her factory, which employs women affected by the Ebola crisis. We also talked about her store, which employs refugees living in Atlanta. Here, she explains how her business began. Well, Mango Rags was my first business. I started selling clothes out of the trunk of my car because I couldn't afford to, make, to buy the clothes that I wanted to wear. So I just started to make them. And people saw me on social media and they liked what I was wearing and they wanted some. So I saw it as a business opportunity. So for a year I was selling dresses out of the back of my car and then I saved up enough to open a shop. So Mango Rags opened in 2013 in Monrovia and it was so much fun. But at our one-year anniversary, I remember hearing the first time of Ebola and what it was doing in rural Liberia. I did not feel like it was going to affect me in the city, and then it really did. So Mango Rags had to close after about a year and a half, and I came to the States, and I looked around, and I saw the real disruptors and the real people who were creating anything worth talking about were creating things that involve the community. And I realized that my business was a selfish business and I needed to find a way to center myself and see how I could help others. So I went back to Liberia after Ebola had slowed down and I opened the bombshell factory in 2016. 
so that I could hire and train women from backgrounds of poverty who wanted to work in fashion, but maybe didn't feel like they could, similar to me because we were in Liberia and nobody was looking at Liberia for fashion. So it's been really exciting to bring beautiful things from our small little country to you know Hollywood celebrities and, and also just beautiful, strong women all over the world. Now, you graduated from Georgia Tech, correct? Yes. What did you study? I was, they don't even have my major anymore, but I was in the liberal arts college. My major is science, technology, and culture. So I studied this because I wanted to be the West African Oprah Winfrey. (laughs) I thought that I would post videos, you know, and travel Africa like that. And um, it didn't work out that way, but I'm just grateful for the experiences. I have a feeling Oprah would approve of what you're doing. Have you ever approached her? Um, You know, it's funny. I don't think she and I shop at the same supermarket, but uh, if ever (laughs) you heard about me, I mean, you know, I think that the lasting lesson that she has imparted on me is you know, it's not so much about what you're doing in front of the camera, it's about how you're making people feel and how you're impacting people's lives. And so that has been the big piece for me, right? I just want to make sure that I have a huge impact on everyone that I touch. Why Liberia? Why did you move there? My family, we're Liberian refugees. So my mother and father grew up in Liberia and left because of the war. And my grandfather, stayed in Liberia for a a long time. For me, when I graduated, I wanted to connect with home. In so many ways, I feel like I went back to hopefully see him, even though he had passed. Uh, And so I I go and, you know, as I build my business, sometimes I have conversations with him in my head, like, would he be proud of the way that I'm doing things? Or what would that advice be? Liberia was once such a shining example of an independent African Republic. And now we're consistently the poorest. I know that we as people are stronger and better than what we may seem to be right now. And I wanted to be a part of that, that story. Let's talk about the name of this story. It's sort of a throwback. The word bombshell, you know, brings images of Marilyn Monroe to mind. It's sort of a mid-20th century term for uh, sexy beauty. Yours is spelled B-O-M-B-C-H-E-L. And why do you call the employees the bombshells? Well, I call employees bombshells and I call our customers bombshells because I really want to emphasize how connected we all are. We can't separate our makers from the purchasers because I think that that has a lot to do with putting space between us so that we don't care about the conditions that our clothes are made in. We have to know that we are all the same. I call everybody a bombshell. So whether you wear one, wear our clothes or you make our clothes, you are a bombshell because you're contributing to this new narrative for amazing, beautiful pieces coming out of West Africa that I don't think many people would think of without our factory. And in fact, then, 
bombshell with the C-H-E-L derived from your name is, is somewhat ironic, although empowering. Yeah, yeah. You know, I grew up in North Cobb. We were the only Black family in the neighborhood and therefore for sure the only African family. And, you know, my name was always weird. Like, I could never get a birthday card with the name spelled right or could never find a mug or a keychain with my name on it. And every year I tried to reinvent myself or make my name more simple so that I wouldn't stand out as much. I went by Shelby for the longest. Oh, Art Shell is so much more elegant. I know. I went by Shelby for the longest because I just wanted to fit in, you know? I just really wanted to fit in. But the importance for me of spelling bombshell in that funky way that my name is spelled is that I'm saying, you know, this is it. I'm going to, uh, you guys are going to learn my name. You're going to learn how to spell it. You're going to learn how to say it, you know? And it's just going to be okay. And for all the other girls who have super weird names, they'll learn how to spell it, they'll learn how to say it, and it's gonna be okay. Arshel Bernard, the founder of Bombshell. That's spelled B-O-M-B-C-H-E-L. The West African clothing store is located in Pont City Market. You've been listening to City Lights our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll learn about a new project in Cobb County to honor the memory of its enslaved population during the 19th century. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Our engineer is Shelley Kenevy. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thank you for listening to member-supported W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.